0: Hello Podcast Penance, it's producer Mike here with another handy warning. Today's guest is a really talented comedian and really good at making dick jokes on Twitter, but not so good at setting up the technology. So please forgive the odd sound issue in today's episodes, motherfuckers. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Horny Muslim, and among other things, it looks at where good ideas come from. You can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. Those are the words of Maya Angelou. In 2014, a Stanford University study found that going for a walk doubles your creativity regardless of whether you go outdoors or just do laps of your bedroom. It's almost like they knew a pandemic was coming. And working on a messy desk or in a messy room apparently improves your creativity and problem solving my firstborn must be one hell of a creative. A lot of good ideas and inventions come about by mistake, perhaps most famously, Alexander Fleming's discovering of penicillin. But the pacemaker was also created by accident when John Hopps, an electrical engineer, was conducting research on hypothermia and using radio frequency heating to restore body temperature. During his experiment, he realised if a heart stopped beating due to cooling, it could be started again by artificial stimulation, which led to the creation of the pacemaker. But not all bad ideas work out for the best. One of the original ideas for the name of Amazon was Relentless. And if you type in relentless.com, it still directs you to the main Amazon site.
0: I'm sorry about the, you know, it's been a bit back and forth, hasn't it? So thank you for bearing with me.
1: That's my guest today, Sadia Azmat. One of my favorite quotes from comedy legend, George Carlin is never give up on an idea simply because it's bad and doesn't work. The television show, The Golden Girls, was originally a joke. NBC in the States did a parody of Miami Vice called Miami Nice, featuring old people sitting around playing cards. NBC's then senior vice president liked the idea so much that he made it into a show. Albert Einstein claimed that his second best idea was to boil his eggs in his soup, thereby saving on washing up. You heard it here first, Freshers Week students. And for those of us who, like me, find procrastination the biggest obstacle to creativity, here's a quote from American cartoonist Bill Watterson. You can't just turn on creativity like a faucet, you have to be in the right mood. What mood is that? Last minute panic. So I'm just very happy that you're here. Where are you doing it from, Sadia? Where are you? I'm
0: currently in Hemel Hempstead at the minute.
1: Sadia Asmat was born in Leighton, East London, and at the age of 19 started wearing hijab. She got into stand-up in 2010 after a chance encounter with a comedian in a call centre who introduced her to the circuit. Her 2014 debut show, I'm Not Malala, gained widespread acclaim and paved the way to her many other career achievements, including her hit BBC podcast, No Country for Young Women. She spent lockdown writing a memoir, Sex Bomb, a book about how sex and dating can be a bit tricky as a Muslim in a headscarf. Sadia and I talked about preconceptions, writing, prejudice, sex, finding your voice, comedy, crowd pleasing, creativity, podcasting, vulnerability, and American versus UK comedy. But I started by asking her about her relationship status.
0: I'm not in a relationship actually. Um, I, don't, I don't, I think it's enough. I, I would definitely say no. <laughs> oh, it sounds a little
1: bit like there might be possibilities though. You're sounding like you're hedging your bets a bit.
0: No, 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 no. <clears throat> I mean the relationship much like you, uh, unless you're with someone because obviously I haven't asked you. Um, we, we're very busy women. So I think um, what we do is kind of like quite fulfilling, almost like a relationship without the sex and stuff.
1: Sometimes with the sex, but just not always in a sort of permanent, secure. I'm happily married with two kids, kind of way, right?
0: Oh, are you? Are you? you so you're happily married, yeah?
1: No, I'm not. I'm I'm oh. uh, unhappily unmarried. No, I'm not. I'm actually quite happy, but not. Uh, no, not married. I've never been married. So yeah, I have my kids. Me neither. Um, Me neither. So yeah, you you've got a book that you're writing on right now, right? You've been working yes. on a sex bomb. You've actually Indeed. been productive during lockdown, unlike some of us.
0: <laughs> I would describe one of my namaste moments um, in, in getting the book deal because I've always wanted to write a book, um, being a writer and, and a creative, but I didn't know how to do it. Like, that's one of the things nobody teaches you at school. And um, a few years before I got this book deal with um, Headline, I, I did walk into – I'm not even sure if I should say this, but I, as long as I don't get sued, I'm fine. But um, I walked into a meeting with Penguin, and then we chatted about an idea – for a um, fiction, and then um, basically, when they followed me on Twitter and saw some of my stuff, they they just like lost interest straight away. And so, I kind of felt a bit like judged by that first experience with it, with the kind of like publishing world, which I shouldn't have generalized because obviously everybody's different. But then what happened year, then? So, what did they
1: see? What, what is it that? What do you think the shift was for them? What is it they saw that wasn't what they wanted?
0: Well, in the meeting, we were talking about um, kind of identity. I think it was a bit more of what they expected from a Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. And then obviously on Twitter, I think I was talking about Dick or, you know, it was just regular day, you know, talking about Dick. Not regular day,
1: me. regular Dick. Regular day, you know, yeah.
0: normal for me. And, and they know that, you know, I'm comedian, so it comes with the territory. Um, and then, yeah, they just like never followed up. And so whether the two are related or not, um, you know, who, who who's to say? But, um, yeah, it just, I think it's tricky what we do because you want to be authentic, but you also, um, you know, you want to be creative as well. And uh, I think when you're dealing with the industry, there's a sales aspect to it. And I think because um, a kind of like a, you know, a kind of more horny Muslim is is less uh, familiar territory, I think that probably put the guard up from a sales perspective, um, but but I didn't always. Well, you know, we what we do, we don't do it because it's viable, not viable. We do it because you know if if it's, if it resonates. Um, and so last year I was on Twitter. We were in a lockdown, and I saw somebody retweet my editor, who's amazing. Shout out to Katie Packer. And she tweeted after um kind of what happened with black lives matter and she tweeted you know if you're from an underrepresented background you want any help in the industry um the publishing industry do get in touch and so i've always wanted to write a book and i had written an article for the metro the year before about being a horny muslim and um I don't know why like I think because the world was open per se and there was so much going on that I just didn't knuckle down to do it but I sent her the article and we we chatted back and forth about the idea for the book and we both kind of like I don't know she's an amazing person to work for I think she's very um fresh and vibrant and I think that's quite exciting um for me um Likewise for her, I think maybe my story is quite authentic. And so, you know, she, she seemed to be into it as well. So Penguin had decided,
1: I'm guessing they were more attracted to Muslim than Horny. Uh, so the combination of those two didn't sit yes. well with them, right? Which that's is something, right. and that that's a really... It's funny because obviously you and I will come up with our different types of prejudice uh, in life and in the industry and assumptions that people make about each of us. And I'm guessing the assumptions in some cases there may be overlap and I'm guessing in lots of ways there isn't. But I do know, I think anyway, there's the whole thing about female comedians talking about sex and the classic thing that we all know, which is if a woman has a one-minute bit about sex in 20-minute set, then people Mm. will say afterwards, why do you keep talking about sex, whereas a guy can talk about tossing off for like 12 minutes and no one says a (laughs) word. So I think already there's a slight uh, dichotomy between what's expected of a male comedian or a female comedian, uh, let alone the fact that even uh, dividing it in terms of gender in that way is outmoded but it, do you find that that is exacerbated by the fact that people see you you wear your hijab you're Muslim and they're just like this is not what what this person should be saying
0: yeah well I think I feel quite fortunate as a as a Muslim comedian because um following on your point is that there is no expectations because you, you you're just not meant to be there full stop so I think it's it's empowering in one way because you get to own the narrative um because they don't have that preconception um so in many ways you could argue that so much of what i say whether it's relationship wise or not is just unexpected and then it's trying to um as you do and as we do is, is to kind of get them on side or win them over so that they'll go with you because um you want it to be authentic as well and yeah, I, I think it's important that you kind of like um, say something, but at the same time, it, they can take it or leave it. And I think I'd rather have an audience choose to take it or leave it than kind of feel sorry for me and kind of fake fake it and yeah I think that's a bit awkward
1: (laughs) yeah I always think that when people say what's the worst heckle I always say it's apathy you know if people don't give a shit and people look bored that I really have a problem working with that (laughs) if someone really has an opinion or has some energy good or bad that gives us something to work with but do you um one of the things um that I think is really interesting about people's assumptions And I was I actually put in something with um, Radio 4 recently about this is the idea of which, by the way, did not make it through the final round of commissioning. But hey, ho! Um, but it was about it was called The Invisibility Cloak. And I'll talk about it now so no one can steal the idea. And basically, it was about the idea of various uh, people who, for whatever reason, might be underestimated or deemed to be invisible by society but how that can also be a bit of a superpower because you can come mm. in and do amazing stuff and no one really sees you coming and you can sort of get ahead by stealth in a way and do you find that there's a a power in getting on stage and people looking at you making snap judgments and you being able to pull the rug out in whatever way you choose
0: i think that's a good question if i'm honest with you kelly um i'm just going to be really straightforward i surprised I was I was the one who was surprised because I think initially I misunderstood that it may open doors and I say it I mean the hijab would Mm -hmm. open doors um but actually it didn't and I think um doing so many years um on the circuit and I, I I would I would really say that my experience is the same as everybody else's who works really hard who isn't kind of like you know uh, famously involved already somehow. But yeah, you. there is really no um, kind of cheat. There is no, for, for stage time, there is no um, kind of way of breaking through without paying your dues, as it were. So um, I think I always like at the beginning felt that being different might help the cause but actually it's really just putting your hours in doing the work learning um, from your mistakes falling over and then getting back up um which nobody told me because obviously how could they um but yeah I really think that it's not about the hijab at all and I think that um you have to learn that yourself because yeah you, there's no shortcut for stage yeah, time right you can make you can make the thing that is different about you your thing but that's not what i was doing um and then you have to kind of unlearn that because people are not stupid audiences are not stupid they can your whole person and so that is one aspect of you so by all means call out the elephant in the room and and people do appreciate when you mention something, but there's a difference between um, it being the 20 minute set and it just being a part of it. And, and you have to make your bed align it. So if that's the persona, then it'll be harder for you to break away from that. But if you're more than that, then you're kind of less tied to what people's um, kind of connection with it is.
1: Yeah, no, I get you and completely. I to yeah. And I think it is, there's absolutely, um, I completely agree with you. There are no shortcuts and we're all getting where we're getting on our own merits. Mm. I think, and and I had, having worked kind of behind the scenes in stand-up for a couple of decades before I got into doing it on stage, even then, having seen so many stand-ups come through from nothing to becoming big names, it still surprised me quite how difficult it is to do it. It definitely does look so much easier than it is. But I suppose the bit that, um, yeah, rather than cutting corners or getting in um, by being put into anything for any demographic reason, I guess it's more that sometimes... I find it a power that people assume things content-wise about what I might or might not be going to say and then the power of going whatever direction I like with content, regardless of what assumptions and snap judgments they make. And I don't know if Mm. you find that powerful in terms of your actual material, not your stagecraft or your industry recognition, but in terms of playing with the room.
0: I think it's the way that you approach it. And I think the less you have in your head before you go on stage probably is the better because um then it leaves you open to to what's going on in the room and to call things out and to ad lib and interact whereas sometimes what I found earlier on is when I had something in my head then I was less present in the room and um so it, it it's a mindset definitely but sometimes you know it can go either way so my my advice or recommendation would be to try to have as less Pre, pre, uh, basically, less stuff going on in your head as possible going in there because it's neither, it doesn't necessarily have to be, it, it doesn't define you. And, um, yeah, I just, I just don't know that I need it to, to occupy as much space as, as it has perhaps in the past, or oh, I don't see the value of, of what, what it does. So I don't yeah I I just I've kind of like made my peace with with it and what people's uh interactions with it is, is so I don't really feel strongly about that
1: yeah yeah no I hear you and I guess I think it's really interesting you say that because I know the one bit of advice I ever give myself when I'm about to go on stage is like turn up meaning mentally turn up like don't worry about material just just get in there and be present and I Mm -hmm. think it does take a certain number of stage hours stroke years to get to the point where you can actually relax and turn up and be present and I don't know about you but the, the ones I have nowadays where Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of playing a record at the wrong speed, which I know is, not a, is a bit of a Gen X reference. But I, if everything's go wrong, I'm like, I don't quite know what that was. But usually, the common link I look back at is thinking, yeah, I wasn't quite in the room. I was kind of watching myself. And thinking what I was about to say. And that really isn't a helpful thing. But it also, I think, it, I don't know how you're finding this. You, you've been doing it a bit longer than me. About 10 years, is that right? 10, yeah, 11 years? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, and it takes I d- it takes so long to find your voice right. Don't, don't you think, like, the difference between what you feel like you'd like to be on stage and what you're managing to be? Have you, have you found there a, been a gap Yeah, there? and
0: I think what you just said there shows how long you've been doing it, um, which is a long time. When you say... It was about you because I think at the beginning, um, the tendency just to protect yourself to an extent is to kind of look at the circumstances beyond you, like the you know the, the they were on a stag do. they were drinking, they were this, they were that. Whereas I, I do think that is good to kind of try to to take ownership sometimes I think we're we can be a little bit harsh on ourselves as, as acts because although I, I do feel that we have to be responsible I think um sometimes we overly uh focus on what didn't go well as opposed to the many 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 great things that did go well. we might focus in on the one or two that kind of perhaps didn't quite uh fit together so that's always important. And I forget your question, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, um, just talking about the idea of the content, of, of getting to the point where you actually start to find your actual voice work, right? because it's so easy. Yeah. You learn what, it, it takes a bit of time, obviously, for us to learn what does please a crowd and how to really hold our own on stage. And that feels like a big moment when you start it's to have confidence between
0: saying what you want to say and saying what they want to hear isn't it
1: yeah it's such and it's such a hard and do you sometimes find and again you're more experienced than, than I am as a comic no
0: stop saying that Kelly I think you we're are the same amount. <laughs> you know
1: you are you've been going you've been going longer and you have a brilliant rightly so brilliant reputation but but do you it, it's that feeling sometimes where I'm like god the things I want to say I think are going to be maybe darker or riskier or more unexpected and won't guarantee to please a crowd now in the short term. But I sort of think if I could dare to do more of that in the longer term, I would have a voice on stage I'd be really proud of that would please people uh, in terms of keeping them laughing, right? Because that's what Mm. we're there to do. And I don't know how you find that combination of we get books to keep people laughing for 20 minutes, but it isn't always exactly really what we prefer to be saying. Do you find there's a gap between those two things? No, I totally
0: understand what you're saying. And I think... um... There's so much I could say on what you've just what you just brought up. So Jim Jeffries, for example, when he was on ComCom podcast, which is if anybody who isn't au fait with that is called the Comedians Comedian podcast, which comedians love to listen to if it's like one of their faves with he, Stu Goldsmith. He, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to it. Yeah, and he he was like, once a joke starts to work, stop doing it and move on. And I was like, my mind was blown when he was uh, when he said that because creativity to to kind of like keep moving keep it moving I think is really um important um I think um you know what I think you can say what you want to say but I think you have to sell it um you have to kind of like be really really comfortable and relaxed about saying it and then and then yeah it may be divisive or it may completely be uh, it may land with the whole room um but I think yeah the trick to saying things that are less Um, uh, easygoing shall we say is definitely in the way that you present it you have to be at ease you can't be tense you have to be really really relaxed in the way you're saying and if you're having a good time um, I think that's the trick on that.
1: Yeah it's funny how you end up also I think the idea that you can if if it's feeling a little bit harder to tell sometimes it really is owning if the joke is feeling harder to tell sometimes it's walking towards the discomfort right a couple of I can't remember who it was um, some comedian that I really admired sorry that's a bit vague uh, said to Mm -hmm. me he said you know that if you think something's funny and you want to walk towards that because you believe that's funny at the point at which it gets awkward just keep walking towards it so don't bail on the idea double down on it own the fact that the audience may not be going with it and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and the funny will be there but it may take more courage to get to it, and I thought, God, well, that's really and that's the kind of improv way, right? You just keep going further with the idea.
0: The um, repetition in you reinforcing the doubling down, for example, is it, going to be funny in itself because of the rhyme and rhythm to it. So, so yeah, um, I think great things can come in the moment. But if it's a bit that you're dying to try out that you haven't, um, if you've kind of like nailed where you're going with it, it's certainly worth airing and. I don't know I I don't know what you think but I tend to find that audiences up north are a little bit more kind of risky, uh, good, at, good at taking the risks, whereas I find London audiences sometimes can be a bit tight. That's really so...
1: interesting. I'd never thought of it like that. Yeah, it's really <laughs> interesting, actually. It's true. There are some rooms, and again, you have to be really careful not to stereotype, don't you, because you never know what the room will give you. But maybe mm. there's there's something perhaps about London audiences where they're very, very comedy savvy, right? They can go to comedy seven nights a week. They It's almost like there's um a kind of analysis sometimes rather than just... Enjoying it and seeing what they think of it as you tell the jokes?
0: Yeah. Sometimes I think so so you know, I know it's like I, I mean going back completely on what I said about don't go in there with anything in your head, which I, I still stand by, but sometimes where you are, it can it can also um influence something. And so I think involving the audience can be useful, um, interacting with them, talking to them as, talking with them maybe, talking with them rather than at them or talking to them rather than at them. I don't know what, how I have to say that, but yeah, just acknowledging them. Sometimes uh, when you're trying a new bit, it's it's too easy to try and just jump through it. But if you're really talking to them, talking to them um, as opposed to uh, just saying the words, it's a huge difference in the presentation.
1: Yeah, and going, so I remember someone saying to me kind of quite early on that the temptation is when you have a bad gig. To just start racing through stuff apologetically, yeah. Yeah, almost like a recital. And mm. when somebody said to me that that's the point at which you slow down and dive into the room, you know, if the room are not receiving you well, instead of almost disregarding them and saying your stuff, get it, get stuck in there, talk to them, work through what's going on in the room. And mm. that was such a helpful thing. It sounds so obvious, but it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? When your fight or flight comes in and you're like, right, I just need to get the hell off the stage. And I think it takes <laughs> some, it takes some guts to kind of start to i think that's the only way you start to really find your voice right is when you actually dare to slow it down and take the risk that maybe people don't like it but it's still what you want to learn to say
0: yeah um i think i I haven't quite like i haven't got like i'm not sure if it's like completely i don't think it's 50 50 in terms of giving them and and doing you but i think owning it is a huge deal and being grounded um and, and to be honest with you, frankly, somebody will have something to say about everything. So whether it's, you know, they may not differentiate from the fact that you were trying something that's um, more original or unique. You know, someone can kind of like literally find fault in anything. So I, I usually find that as a good kind of way to motivate myself if I'm doing something that is maybe less less tried out. It's just that, you know, um, you, you're you trying to be authentic and um being genuine and authentic is a lot there's a lot to say for that um and at least you know at least you kind of like didn't pander to an audience who might just throw it throw it back at you anyway
1: (laughs) yeah and it's also I mean it's it's funny when you say that there wasn't you know there were no expectations because you weren't there wasn't a mold of comedian where you came in and people were like okay here's another you know female Mm. muslim comedian what what's she gonna say so there was no mold in a way and how did you so how did you get into that because I know you so you were born in um you're born in Leighton right uh and you were not I'm I'm guessing nobody around you was like what you need to do is go and be a stand up so
0: so how did you get into it? So I, I love to write um, and actually wanted to be a writer and didn't know how and, and was told you, there was no way, basically, that you could be a writer. I wasn't told that, but, like, my understanding of, of how hard it was to get into the inner you know, sanctum of writing in the UK seemed as though that was the case. But I was told from a few, you know, different sources that, um, you know, perhaps comedy would be a good thing because what it, it was comedy is that you get – you become a better writer because you try your material out. So I didn't really know what all of it meant really. And um, I considered myself to be funny and, Thought it'd be okay to try out, um, although it was quite a scary prospect because I hadn't done that before, and so I tried out a gig, and it went it, it, it was fine. Somebody gave me their card after during the gig, and then said, you know, would you like to to do some comedy at an event I'll be doing in a few months? So I said fine, and then you kind of just um, you're in it, which whatever that means. And then you kind of jump from gig to gig and you kind of like find your feet. And I was working in between it. So there were times where I was more active than not. Um, and then you get an agent. It's, it's an interesting kind of industry because sometimes things come your way, um, which you didn't really do much to get or towards. And there'll be other things which you worked really, really hard to amass and, and that don't go anywhere. So nothing really prepares you for that, and you have to kind of like um, keep it moving and be really um, dynamic. I think.
1: Namaste, motherfucker
0: in terms of your you actually
1: getting out there and doing it if you look at the difference between the you then so I often think that comics are either they're either really really good writers who kind of do the performance bit because they it's like that's that's the way to get the material out or you get really great performers who aren't necessarily always the best writers mm-hmm. and it's in I got into it the kind of opposite way of you because I was used to being on stages and doing stuff and I wanted to try comedy as a, as a kind of performance means and I've always struggled more with the writing that takes me much longer longer has mm-hmm. it in terms of how you've kind of grown up as a comic and obviously you're still you know writing the book you're there's stuff going on that's really significant for you as a writer and, and always has been but have the two kind of merged your desire to be on a stage performing at, at combined with your capacity as a writer
0: I think that's really a great question and um I think I think sometimes one is a little bit sharper than the other is the, is the honest answer. Mm-hmm. So sometimes my writing is really good and then um, I need to work on the performance or other times if my performance is really good, then I could be pushing myself on the material front. Mm-hmm. So I have I don't think that they're unfortunately <laughs> still um, at, in, in a, in a kind of more of a equal footing, but I, I do, I, I enjoy being on stage. I've kind of like, you know, grown up um a lot kind of like with with a lot of the um stage uh stage craft and kind of like it, I, what I'm saying is it's very character building performing um and and having people come to see you is is quite is, is like really humbling um, but yeah I think I think you need to kind of like push yourself really um, or shall I say I need to push myself sometimes when it comes to the writing and I think that that is going back to what you said about balancing the things that you want to say versus the things that maybe people um, that there's an audience for perhaps. And I think that there's an audience everywhere um, for everybody. It's, it's a case of finding your audience. And so that's one of the things I'm really hoping the book will help with. It's kind of like finding the audience because, you know, I know I'm not the only horny Muslim out there, um, Obviously, the book is a lot goes into other things, but um, yeah, I think it's about finding your audience, and then when you find your audience, you can kind of explore your kind of your um, what's the word I'm looking for. You can explore your voice more more holistically. Whereas until you find your audience, you're kind of um, kind of I don't know. It's still experimenting in a way. Yeah, I remember Jess foster
1: Q saying to me, but maybe a couple of years into doing stand-up, and I didn't know Jess at the time. I think she'd not long before had her little boy and so she hadn't been on the circuit for a bit. And I was at a new material night that Sarah Pascoe was hosting, and Sarah and Jess obviously come from the sort of similar, you know, the class of whatever year it would be. They started together. And I remember Jess saying to me in the kind of break between doing our sets, and she said, You really need to think about why you're doing it. And she said, and for me, it's about finding my audience. And if I could fill out small kind of art centers with people who really want to hear the type of stuff I want to say, that for me is success. And it's not about competing with anyone around you on the circuit. The only person you're in a race with is yourself to find what it is you're after. And I remember thinking, God, that's really interesting to think that that your voice and your audience might be the reason you're doing it. It's not about getting on mock the week or, or getting the absolute best of the pro circuit. And I think it is really interesting because your, your podcast, um, I loved your podcast, No Country for Young Women, which I think it, it stopped last year, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Such a good, anyone who hasn't, again, we'll put a link to it. Um, I know that you can get all the episodes still. It was at BBC um, commissioned by the BBC, but it felt to me hearing that, and I know by then you'd would you been you know writing and, and doing comedy for, for quite a while, but there was something so beautifully articulate about the two of you hosting that, about your voices and the authenticity of the conversations that you would have. I think sometimes the pressure of a podcast or a broadcast feels so much that you curate yourself and you try and sort of say what you think the people who've commissioned you might want to hear and my sense listening to that was that it was very much driven by what you actually thought and wanted to say is
0: that how it felt when you were doing it yeah so I did that podcast with my um, very good friend Monty and um we used to have just really amazing phone conversations and so you're such a good we... mix the two of you, it's all <laughs> amazing. you sort of feel like oh I'd quite like to just go out and hang out in the pub with you too <laughs> oh yeah Monty is great and yeah I think what it was is we just I mean personally for me is I guess I always thought that I knew what you know a lot about race and then I think what was really beautiful and enlightening about the podcast was was so much that I didn't know and learning and and from people's different people's experiences and and hearing Monty's um stories as well um and yeah there was there was a lot to like you know a lot to glean from the things that I didn't know it was really humbling and yeah I think it was a great time to be part of podcasts because um yeah because it was it didn't kind of like necessarily fit into what the traditional radio radio uh medium expected mm-hmm. of, of people and so yeah we just got to have banter we got to kind of meet wonderful guests and kind of like put ourselves out there and and it was really 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 fun so yeah
1: and really interesting, I think sometimes when somebody has a an ongoing recommissioned series, it starts to get a little bit repetitive and formulaic. But one of the things I did love about it, it was quite surprising. I didn't feel like I knew, right, well, you'll have this kind of guest and this will be your chat. It was, it was incredibly wide-ranging. I definitely would anyone who hasn't listened to it um, d- do check out what we'll put in the show notes. But is it in terms of your influences then? I know you mentioned um listening to the Comedians Comedian podcast, which we all love, as you say, and the episode with Jim Jeffries but but who were the kind of role models or influences
0: for you then Sadia when you were starting out as a stand-up so I really like Chris Rock I really like um Kat Williams um Norm McDonald's just passed away um I know yeah. that's such a body blow isn't it yeah he was he was phenomenal um there's obviously Dave Chappelle and the list goes on and on there's Bill Hicks so you're quite um, American centric I really do like their style because I feel like they're not holding back and I really feel that there's a, a sincerity there um, without having to kind of like give up your whole soul because I think that in the UK it feels as though you have to really bear your, the skeletons in your closet which I don't really necessarily think is is necessary but it feels that like that's the style difference um, is that this is what is required of you in the UK whereas in America You can still have shared experiences, but you don't have to kind of like spell it out as black and white.
1: And is it, um, because when you think about bearing your soul and the idea of who you actually are, and I I think there's something about Vulnerability, like being able to be vulnerable on stage is really important. But I don't think that's necessarily the same as showing every part of yourself. I think you can be vulnerable, but still choose what you show to an audience. And that's one of the things I love. I like you. I absolutely love American comedy. You know, I worked for Comedy Central over there for years. And wow. I'm, very, I'm very influenced by, I mean, I'll watch, I'll watch Seth Myers and Stephen Colbert. I'll watch their, and Trevor Noah. I'll watch their monologues literally every day. I can't ever miss one. Mm. Um, and there is a different, it's almost like over there I used to I noticed it, I used to gig a lot on the American or the New York circuit and I would really notice that there was a sort of um not a cynicism to it but people who weren't very experienced would have incredible stage craft and they would come on like they you'd sort of be convinced as an audience member that they must have been going 20 years they really knew their craft whereas but maybe they're what they were trying to say took a bit longer to get more interesting. It was a bit more like, I know how to get the gigs and I know how to keep the audience going. Whereas I feel like on the UK scene, in the beginning, people aren't necessarily as polished, but they are maybe really trying to write their own gags and do stuff. So I do think there's a bit of a of a difference. But did you were there people kind of growing up, were there people you were watching and thinking, do you know, I'm going to do that? Or, or, or was it literally your way of getting better as a writer that got you into it?
0: um to be honest like chris rock was the main influence when i was in my teens um just because of the things that he was saying were were so enticing to me and and so unlike the things that i heard in in my normal kind of day to day so i found it very exciting and glamorous and honest and um all those good things but no i mean i didn't really think that i would get into comedy at all because i just didn't see that as a as a viable prospect that's all it was never taught to you at school that this is something you could be so I kind of I always say that I think comedy finds you (laughs) you don't yeah it's a nice way to put it. it Took a yeah. bit of a long time
1: to find me, Sardia. So well done <laughs> finding you when you weren't as LA ancient. Never exactly. That's <laughs> definitely true. Um, yeah, and I think it is in terms of the what you were saying about comedy. In a way, that our relationship is with comedy, and it's quite hard to have a real relationship. Maybe that's just our excuse that we can't um, <laughs> can't get laid during a lockdown. But did you? So you went. What, what were your circumstances during the lockdown? Were you where were you living, and, and were you in a relationship?
0: No, so I was on my own, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some guys were scared of catching a virus, and I was like, Well, what about the virus you gave me? I'm just joking. <laughs> but, um, no, I think that there was it was a very strange time, I think, all around. And I, I mean, my friend Monty, she, she she tells me on good authority that people were having you know booty calls people were fucking she, she reminds me so I can't I can't I think I'm overdoing telling myself that people were just worried about coronavirus I don't really think that people I mean you know I guess there were some that were wor- worried about it but um I was just so we still had the podcast so that's what we were up to and then I was doing the book and um yeah it was it, I think it's like I don't know I think it's like you can make so many excuses because when you're gigging and pre-covid you could say well I was working I was at a gig so I don't I don't like you know I'm not going to see that as a as a way of meeting people because I'm I'm working but then when you weren't working then what's your excuse but <laughs> I kind of like don't do the apps. so yeah that's my excuse you don't do the apps what
1: why don't you do them
0: um I don't know I really don't know I think I think I'm concerned about what kind of rubbish uh, chat I might, I might come against because sometimes like, you know, I'm not on the apps, but like even just random messages on, on, you know, social media, like Twitter and Instagram, will we really like just a bit much just because right. I think people might not always distinguish between being, you know, telling a joke and, and who you really are. Yeah. I think that is definitely a problem
1: for all of us, right. That people, even though the version of us on stage is real, it's a we've chosen what part of ourselves to show and the Your volume is. Turned up. Yeah, yeah, you're you're doing it for comedic
0: effect. Yeah, but you that's choose, not going to be you like yeah. nine to five, it's not and, you
1: every single day. Exactly. And also the what might seem like oversharing. Obviously, we know what we're gonna overshare. I'm I don't mm. know if you have this, but sometimes people come up to me afterwards. And they'll really massively overshare with me. And I'm thinking, no, no, what you just heard on stage, I I knew what I was going to say. I knew why. You don't need to come tell me some massively intimate, inappropriate detail about you and your husband's sex life because that isn't what I just did. So I I don't know if you find that people sort of mistake your honesty for being a certain type of person. And you're like, you don't don't actually know know me. I don't know what's worse,
0: Kelly. I don't know if that's worse or if the people who come up to me after my set and try and help me rewrite a certain aspect but if you'd said that Do you mean other comedians or audience no, members? No, audience, audience. Really? I like oh, see, I don't get the, we, we,
1: what sort of things <laughs> that's really nice I, of them, thank so it's you been, audience.
0: It's been a while to be honest with you since because you kind of know know who's coming for you so you know how to kind of field it but like just just the odd thing like oh it would have been better if you'd done that there or if you'd done this there and you're kind of looking, looking at them thinking I've only done this for like knows how many years but thank you so much for the feedback and they're just making an assumption right about your competence you should laugh during the thing if you're not going to laugh during the thing I'm not open to um you know after hours comments
1: I completely agree. I think that could be the name of your next book. If you can't laugh during the thing, I am not open to after-hours comments. And do you find, because one of the things, I I don't know how much you talk on stage about being single, but it's one of my kind of shtick, part of my shtick is talking about being single to the point that when I'm ever in a relationship, I always don't really rewrite the set and act like I am, which is fine because they usually end pretty quickly and that's I'm back to good again. But do you, do you find that um, people have an assumption that if you're not, conforming with whatever people think women should be doing you know what you uh, as a woman your age should be doing what i should be doing that they assume it's because we we don't have a ch- i sometimes get people feeling sorry for me that i'm single they're like oh i don't know why you're single you're really pretty and funny and i think does it occur to you that also maybe I'm being quite picky about who I want to be with and how I want to live my life. I'm not desperately trying to find someone to fit into that part of me. Is it, it, Do you find people make assumptions about why, how and what you would want from a relationship?
0: Mm, I think, no, I, I would definitely say no in the stand-up. I think when I'm tweeting or, or saying something of a of kind of sexual nature um, online, however, I do get people um, kind of, pontificating about it or or over analyzing it and 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 just like you know um trying trying to understand it whereas rather than just seeing it for what it is um I think I think it's nice when people can kind of like relate to you in the way that what you said about people kind of relating to what you're saying I think that that's kind of one of the byproducts of of what we do is is when people kind of like because obviously that means you you did a great gig and they kind of felt for you and and it was real for them so that's quite nice um but no unfortunately I don't really get a lot of people trying to sort my marriage out for me which is good um because that's not what I'm doing it for I just you know, I think I think it's just about shared experiences. And I think although like you, a lot of what I talk about is being a single woman. Um, even women who are in relationships can kind of emphasize with some of our frustrations, I think. They can be jealous yes. of us. That's what I think. They're like, shit, what
1: would I give <laughs> to be single? Do you think um, I, I sometimes feel like whatever the things are we talk about or whatever people think we are, and we all make assumptions about everyone. I sometimes feel like as, as a woman in my fifties doing stand up, and I talk a bit about menopause, I talk a bit about emptiness, but I talk about loads of stuff that's nothing to do with that. And sometimes mm. it's like people assume I'm the spokesperson for menopause or the spokesperson for being a middle-aged female comic. Do you find that people are like, oh, okay, Muslim comedian, you must be the spokesperson for Islam. Like this is, you must be this. and, and, I think... and
0: yeah i would blame it less on the audience and more on the uh, i don't even know what to say more on like i think it can it can be certain promoters without naming names i think i think you know what there is an aspect of that not necessarily with the audience but it, everybody's different so i don't kind of like assume that everybody is like that but I can always I can usually tell if somebody's picking me because they need to tick the diversity box if that makes sense and what do you do when that happens a good question um it really depends take on the what gig being, and say
1: thank fuck <laughs>
0: I'm being it depends on what I'm being offered some people have told me before that just go through the door whatever you know however you can get through it but I don't necessarily kind of always you know agree with that um, agree with that just because I we are always talking about change and if we just do that then where will the change come from so I think I look at like who is offering me uh, what they're offering me and, and you know what do they stand to gain and, and kind of like try to weigh it up and if it doesn't sit right with me then I don't necessarily take the gig to be honest with you I used to at the beginning because it wasn't such a big deal I needed stage time and that's pretty much all the deal was but I think as you become a bit more of I don't know what you want to call it an established act or a brand whatever you want to call it I think you do need to be um, you need to give some thought to to the prospects that you're attaching yourself to because of you know you will be judged by that as well and you'll be uh, and and who you're associating with as well so you need to need to think about that needs to be a bit of a consideration I think.
1: I think people also need to understand that You might, whatever reasons we get onto whatever bill and whatever things happen, whether strategically, whether by serendipity, at the end of the day, doing what we do, if you can't do the job, if you're booked for gigs for whatever reason or you get a podcast, or unless you can do the job, you don't get booked again. So nobody's succeeding on the back of the fact that they got into it for whatever reason or however. At the end of the day, we're totally judged on every gig we do, right? And everything we put out into the world. Mm. So there has to be a sort of strength, I think, in terms of what we do. And I do want to I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody. But just going back to your book for a second, because you mentioned that was kind of one of your namaste motherfucking moments, getting the book mm -hmm. deal. So you're in the process of writing the book and honing it. And it's coming out in early 2022. Is that right? March
0: March the 3rd.
1: And you can pre-order it now. That's so exciting. Yeah, I know. I went on to have a look when I was researching for you. So, yes, again, we'll put a link to the pre-order. Um, but just to give you a good shameless plug of the book, but also because I'm really interested in what it's like to write a book. I'm working on the uh, the book proposal stage of my book, which is <gasps> rather, uh, rather, early. <laughs> it's rather early, early in its gestation because I've been procrastinating massively while you've actually been writing. But if you <laughs> had to sum up then, um, Sex Bomb, if you had to sum up the book, what is it?
0: I think uh, *Sex Bomb* is an exciting story about um, understanding your place in the world, and um, uh, I think also figuring out figuring out different things as a young Muslim woman, such as sex, such as um, identity, and friendship, and uh, growing up. I suppose. And who's it aimed at? Have you got a sort of reader in mind, or is it as broad appeal as possible? um yes I would like it to be a similar audience to who our podcast was at which um because our podcast was basically about um you know navigating yourself when you didn't always feel like um you were part of the big majority or you you fit in so mm-hmm. it would be ideally like it was it would be a book that I wish someone had given me when I was growing up basically so so young ethnic women would be would be amazing to have but also um I think loads of people will get loads, of, loads from it, whether it's you trying to become a comedian and you can kind of glean some stuff from, from me talking about what that was like. Um, if you want to talk, if you want to understand what would, uh, a bit more from my perspective about relationships and datings and, and what looks good and what doesn't look good. Um, so there's something in it, I think, something for everyone. And where are you at
1: in terms of writing it now? Are you at the fine tuning stage? So it's written, are you at the kind of editing
0: stage? Yeah, it's finished nearly. Um, it's going through a few final checks, but pretty much, um, pretty much, nearly there. I would say.
1: I'm totally in awe of the fact you've done that during lockdown. Mm-hmm. I do, yeah, when when most of us are like, oh, I wrote three jokes and did one Zoom gig, and you you knocked out a book. So fair play to you. And Penguin's loss is what I would say, but I <laughs> probably should cut that out in case that's who does my book deal.
0: Namaste, mother-
1: what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking
0: life defining moment um oh, i'm hoping i uh, didn't forget the thing that i wanted to say but i mean even like let's say getting the podcast was was a very defining moment for me um because I've been doing comedy for a long time and um we kind of like I was speaking well BBC Sounds contacted my agent and we kind of like pitched it me and my friend Monty and then we got to do this really really exciting thing and learn together and kind of do a live show and build an audience and find out our podcast of voices if you like and so that would be that that's a fantastic moment I would say
1: I think podcasts are the best in terms of the free being able to actually say the things you want to say. They're such a great format. I can't quite imagine there was ever a world without podcasts. I don't know if you're the same as me, but I just I've always got podcasts playing. It's like my accompaniment to my life. And what is your favorite joke?
0: This is really, really hard. Um, And literally, I think any comedian, uh, this is a really hard question. And if I'm going to be honest, I will say it changes um but I'm not going to butcher it because it's not my joke but if your listeners would look up Norm Macdonald alcoholism I think I think that's um a very very perfectly uh, structured and excellent um bit that you know anybody would like love and learn so much from the more I watch it the more I take from it and I think that's that's the making of like an amazing joke when you can kind of keep listening to it and it's perfect in terms of structure rhythm timing developing when the he idea delivery yeah delivery thing so the smile on his face and kind of like the juxtaposition between what he's saying and kind of like how funny it is. Yeah, and it's
1: also timely. By the time this goes out, it will probably be about three weeks after he died. So it's really lovely to have some kind of tribute to him in the show. We have actually had other people come on and recommend Norm MacDonald's stuff. So it's not the first time we'll have linked to his brilliant, brilliant stuff online. And what is your, um, if you were to give one bit of life advice to anyone listening, Sadia, what would it be?
0: This is so hard, Callie. So (laughs) great questions, by the way. Um, There's so many and um i think I think I want to say a few. when I was doing the podcast um the commissioning um guy uh, commissioning editor Eli told um, Monty and I be you, and I think that's a pretty brilliant piece of advice because I think so many times whether you're in this industry or not, you can try and change who you are mm-hmm. to fit circumstances or to feel like you're more worthy of something or whatever but um to be you, I think, is the best thing that you can be because nobody's nobody's you. Um, also, just to kind of couple with that, I would say to believe in yourself and just to know mm-hmm. that you're enough. I think that would be pretty good. Thank
1: you so much. That's Those are brilliant bits of advice. One of the things I most, it's taken me so long to learn this and I still really struggle with it but the idea you talked earlier about your book maybe being for people who don't feel like there was a book for them or that maybe they don't quite belong. And I Mm. think a lot of comedians are united by the fact that we're outliers for whatever reason, and we don't quite belong. And one of the things I love is the idea that when we feel like an imposter and we don't quite fit in, the temptation is to camouflage ourselves and just go under the radar and I love the idea that when that happens we might dare instead of being an imposter to be a disruptor and just turn the volume up a little bit and see who we are and that's such a difficult thing to do but so much of a more rewarding way to live so I love the idea of of being you and that being the focus rather than what people want to hear from you being the focus but that was so lovely of you to do this thank you Sadia that was the brilliant sadia asmat every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guests that i'm going to try and this week it's inspired in part by sadia's favorite joke and in part by the really sad news a couple of weeks ago of norm Macdonald's death so this week i'm going to go back and watch norm Macdonald has a show on netflix for anyone who didn't see it when it first came out it's a classic norm type take on the celebrity talk show format with guests including drew barrymore david letterman and jane Fonda. and we'll put a link to it in the show notes so that is it for this week thank you so much for keeping supporting the podcast it means the world for us to be doing it so god bless you for listening we'll be back in your feed next monday as always when i'll be talking to anarchist cook comedian and all-round good egg mr george egg
0: Cooking on stage in an unconventional way with unconventional items while telling jokes.
1: Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hanson and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.